I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's near the very beginning of your Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, on the schedule, originally several months ago, I noted that at this point in our series on the Gospel of Mark, I'd be preaching on Sabbath controversies, and I felt like that would be a, a pretty difficult thing to work into a Mother's Day sort of uh, focus as well. And so I've always wanted to preach from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I've never had the opportunity to do so. This, of course, is a very important passage for the Jewish people, but I think it should be for Christians as well. And so as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 today, we're going to consider the role of parents, uh, especially in their spiritual education of their children. Um, and as we do this this morning, I want to ask you to take a trip back in time. Uh, we're going to go the whole way back to when Moses was giving instruction and counsel to the Israelites about how they should work with their children as they prepare to enter the promised land. Uh, this morning, we're going to see uh, uh, his counsel to parents under the law. And we are going to draw applications to our lives as we contextualize this message to our own time and to our own covenant. And so while we are not under the law of Moses, uh, we can learn from how Moses encouraged parents to invest in the spiritual development of their children. But as we look at this text, uh, it's, it's my belief that not only will parents be benefited today, all of us will be benefited. Every person in the room, if you're a follower of Christ. One of the reasons I think that is because this, this text, as originally given, was given to the entire congregation of Israel. Not just parents were targeted with this. It was to the entire congregation of the Israelite people. And so while parents have many opportunities to train up their children in the Lord, we all have the privilege of encouraging the faith and developing the understanding of children in this church. So in other words, you might not be a parent of a smaller child, but God can use you to make a big impact upon children. I trust that we take this stewardship at Colonial Baptist Church very seriously. So I want to look to the Old Testament and see what Moses requires here and how it relates to us. If you are physically able to stand, I invite you to stand with me as I read Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 for us this morning. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together. Dear Father, as we come to this text, this ancient text, where Moses revealed your will to the Israelite people, I pray that, as uh, Thomas has already asked, that we would be eager listeners, that we would look for principles and lessons that we can learn from Moses' instruction, 
And that we would as well consider the opportunity that we have as a church, Colonial Baptist, to invest in the next generation of children for the honor and the glory of God. And Lord, may we learn from the law's central message as we proclaim grace's central message to our children. We thank you for this, Lord. Pray that you would guide us and direct us and give us strength. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So as we come to this place in the book of Deuteronomy, we come to uh, really the main part of the book. The book of Deuteronomy is structured around a series of sermons or speeches that Moses gives to the children of Israel. The first speech is chapters 1 through 4. When you get to chapter 5 in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you come to the second speech or sermon that Moses gives. Moses is giving these sermons uh, near the end of his life as the children of Israel are on the brink of the Jordan River. Of course, Moses isn't going to get into the promised land, but he, he captures what God has been teaching Israel throughout the years. As we come to chapters 5 and 6, we come to, as I said, the longest, or the, the second sermon, which is the longest sermon in the book. It goes from chapter 5 the whole way to chapter 28. It's kind of the core message of this, of this gospel. And so as we come to this place, we come to a place where Moses is giving a final charge to a new generation of Israelites who are going to inherit the promised land. And so this second speech starts in chapter 5, and it starts with two reflections on Moses' time with God on Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses goes up and he receives the law and he receives different pieces or an understanding of the covenant that God is making with him and with the children of Israel. And so what happens in this speech is he's recalling for the second generation who perhaps didn't hear what he had to say about the law in the first generation. He recalls for them the importance and, and he, he draws focus to the core or the essential parts of the Mosaic Covenant. So in chapter 5, if you just look back at your Bible and you start looking around in the middle of the chapter, you will see that Moses portrays what is the, what, you know, some of the greater parts of the Mosaic Covenant by reminding them of the Ten Commandments or the ten words that God had given to him while he was on the mountain. Okay? Of course, this is originally found in Exodus chapter 20, and there he states it for the first generation. Here Moses reaffirms it for the second generation. And so as he's communicating to this new generation what's important about the Mosaic Covenant, he said, there are ten commandments that you really must follow. That's chapter 5. When he gets to chapter 6, he, he not only takes the covenant and narrows it down to the ten commandments, he then takes the ten commandments and he talks about what is the greatest or the most important of those commandments, the first one. The first one is found uh, in... In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, You shall uh, have no other gods before me. And so what you find in chapter 6 is Moses is going to explain more why that is important and how that should look among the people of Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, as I look at chapters 5 and 6, I think that Moses is getting nearer and nearer to the heart or the center of the Mosaic Covenant. And so that's where we pick up Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, 
at the center of the heart of the Mosaic Covenant is this challenge. And Moses does two major things in verses 4 through 9. He starts by emphasizing the importance of grasping the law's central message in verses 4 and 5. And he really gives us, in the original, he gives us one sentence that's packed in these verses. The sentence starts with propositional truth in verse 4 that is essential for the children of Israel to pass on from generation to generation. Verse 4, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Perhaps sometimes you'll hear this passage referred to as the Shema, that actually is reflecting the Hebrew word for hear that is in this text. The Shema, this passage, and, and some others related to it are very important to the Israelite people. To this day, the Israelite people, an Orthodox Jew, will say the Shema twice daily. So Moses starts it in a way, he uses a phrase he's used before. He says, hear, O Israel, listen or consider something, and he would have them consider the nature of God. And so in the rest of verse 4, what he does is he gives us, uh, really, in the original, four words about the nature of God, his character. These words can be translated, these four words can be translated in a whole host of different ways, though. I mean, I think I came across about eight or nine different English translations trying to reflect what's going on in these words. My favorites are the ESV. I do like the ESV that I'm reading from here today. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or another way of saying this is, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. To the Israelite people, they would hear it this way. They would hear, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And so as we consider this propositional truth, I think Moses is answering a question with these words. The question, and you could kind of use this as a catechism, the question would be, who is God? And the answer is Yahweh. Yahweh alone. There's no one like him. And so this was important for the Israelite people to understand that there is only one true God. They could not have an eclectic view of life and religion that would look at all the different nations, all the different gods that they're worshiping, and ever suggest that there's ever another living or true God. There's one God, one God alone, it's Yahweh. And so as we consider this challenge from Moses to the Israelite people, I address now mothers and fathers and grandparents and mature believers of Colonial Baptist Church, and I would say that we, we must spend time with children and teach them this, the Shema. We must clearly teach and reinforce this concept to our children. So the little ones of Colonial Baptist Church must hear from us repeatedly that the Bible says that there is only one true God, the God of heaven and earth, the God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Well, it might be important for you to teach important life skills to your kids or your grandkids or children of Colonial. You know, teach them how to cut a board, how to pound a nail, how to cook a meal or ride a bike. We must teach them this. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. And so all the religions that make make claims about their gods are wrong. We teach this to our children. The, The gods of Buddhism 
Hinduism and Islam and Mormonism. There's only one true and living God, the one described in the Holy Scriptures. And so this propositional truth, I would suggest, is not only, it not only lies at the heart of, the, of Moses' law, it lies at the heart of grace as well, the new covenant. There's only one God, the triune Godhead, including God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Men and women, no matter what your status or state in life, may children in this church hear you repeatedly say, there's only one God. But Moses is not done in verse 4 with this propositional truth. He finishes this first sentence with a personal commitment that he requires from them. Look at verse 5. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And so here he describes the way that, that, that the children of Israel must love this one God, Yahweh. They're to do so in three ways. As I see it in the text, it's pretty easy to see. You're to love him first with all of your heart. I'm grateful for one scholar, if you want a good, good commentary on Deuteronomy, one written by Eugene Merrill, be a good one to pick up. And here Merrill goes through and describes what the heart is. He says, the heart is, in the Old Testament, the seat of the intellect, equivalent to the mind or the rational part of humankind. You see, when we think of heart, we, we typically think of the source of our emotions and our love, our passions, okay? But in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word that is translated heart here would not be, they would not think of it that way. It'd be, it'd be uh, the mind, the intellect, the, thought, the thoughts, the commitments, the values, the rationale of those people. And so God is concerned here about the way that his people think, the way that they reason and what they value in their minds. And so I want to, I want to tell you this. I, I think it's a misunderstanding of the Old Testament and Moses' books to think that they're all about, it's all about regulations and external obedience. Okay, so it's very easy, easy for us as New, New Testament believers, right, to, to look back at the Old Testament and say, man, there just were a lot of commands there. There's like 600 and some of them, right? And it just seems like that's all that God is doing. When you actually look at the law and you start looking at its central message in this passage, it becomes very obvious. You look in the book of Deuteronomy that God was always concerned, always desired the internal, in this text, the internal intellectual loyalties of his people. He says, I want you to love me with all of your heart or your mind. But then he continues and he says that they must love God with all of their soul as well. The Hebrew word soul has perplex or word first soul has perplexed me over the years as well it's, it's a little difficult if I come up to you and I talk to you about your soul sometimes it's you know you know it's like something inside of you but you don't really know exactly what it is and so Merrill's helpful again he says the soul is the being our being or essential person I've heard other people describe the soul as the inner being of a person this week I was reading the Psalms and God brought me to Psalm 103, verse 1, and I think it really helps us understand what the soul is. Psalm 103, verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. What's the next phrase? And all that is within me, bless his holy name. What the psalmist is doing there is he's, he's kind of repeating the same concept. He starts in one way, bless with my soul, all that's within me, bless. 
So as we think of loving God with all of our soul, I think uh, as the psalmist would define it there, it's loving God with all that is within me, all I have in my being. So Moses says here, you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. It's interesting to me that sometimes in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, like, like this passage, he'll combine those two words, heart and soul. Very rarely does he do it, but when he does it, He's making a very strong statement. Okay, he's talking about the idea of, of one's whole being, all of their mental capacities, all their physical abilities or capacities. And so when, what he's doing here, this is a very strong combination. Love God with all of your heart, and with all of your inner being. But then Moses takes this statement and makes it even stronger by adding one more word. He says, the third, they, they must love God with all of their might, too. The word might speaks of physical strength of our being, the sum of our physical energies. And so these three descriptions together speak of totality. God demands that the Israelites love him totally, that they would give all their mental, emotional, and physical energy to pursue God. And might I suggest that this is grace's central, a central concern for grace as well. Now, having the New Testament, as we go to the New Testament, we begin to realize something, though, about this. We begin to realize that it's only the people who will be in Jesus Christ who will be able to love God in these ways. And so as you come to the New Testament, you begin reading, you, you realize that uh, the Scripture is very clear that every person, every person who's ever lived has sinned and has fallen short of the glory of God. That is, God is completely perfect and holy, and there's no person who could ever enjoy close fellowship with him because we are all sinners. We are all lost in our own sins. But then the Bible explains that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to to provide a way for us to be freed or for us to be forgiven for our sins. See, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died on a cross, and then three days later, he rose again. And that's, one of the main, that's the main tenet of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the scriptures say that God did this, Jesus did this for our sins. Our sins had separated us from God. Our worship would never be acceptable to him. We would never be able to enjoy fellowship with him except that we would be in Jesus Christ and in his perfect righteousness. In other words, the only way someone can love God in this way, with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might, is as they stand in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, as his perfection is transferred to us, as our sin is transferred to him. As we consider these things, of course, it would also be good for those, who, those of us who are followers of Christ to consider and to ask ourselves this question, are we giving this sort of effort to loving God? As you read the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.5, can you leave content this morning loving God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my physical energies? Or are you holding back? Perhaps you're giving fuller energy to something else. Your job, 
a lot of time, blood, sweat, tears. It's your job. Your friends. Your families. Your dreams. Your sport. Do you love God totally? With all of your heart, soul, and might? And are we committed to communicate this type of personal commitment to our children, to the children of Colonial Baptist Church? Do you remind your children repeatedly that God does not just want a part of your loyalty or devotion? God wants your love in totality. He longs for you to long for him. This week I was doing a little bit of research regarding Charles Spurgeon. I came across an online article about Charles Spurgeon's mother. The uh, story is entitled online, The Power of a Pleading Mother, and I'll just give you a few little excerpts of this. Charles Spurgeon's mother, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, his mother's name was Eliza. Since his name was known around the world, crowds flocked to his church to hear him preach, and everywhere else people devoured the printed edition of his sermons. When he died, 60,000 admirers filed past his casket, and 100,000 people lined his funeral route. Even today, people visit his grave to pay tribute. Even more read his books and are inspired by his sermons, yet before Charles Spurgeon was the prince of preachers, He was a young boy in the arms of a godly mother. Amid all of his success and all his fame, he would not forget his first and best instructor. I cannot tell, he said, how much I owe to the solemn words of my good mother. Spurgeon's mother repeatedly exhorted her son to turn to Christ. Yet throughout all of his childhood years into his early adult years, he rejected Jesus Christ and he would not be converted. A little bit later in the article, the author says, some of Charles's earliest memories are of his mother gathering the children to read the Bible to them and to plead with them to turn to Christ. To her children, she was more than a teacher. She was an evangelist. I quote, it was a custom on Sunday evenings while we were yet little children for her to stay at home with us. And then we sat around the table and read verse by verse and she explained the scriptures to us. After that was done, then came the time of pleading There was a little piece of a book called Aileen's Alarm or Baxter's Call to the Unconverted. And this was read with pointed observation. She made to each of us as she sat around the table and the question was asked, how long would it be before you think about our state? How long before we would seek the Lord? Then came a mother's prayer and some of the words of that prayer we shall never forget even when our hair is gray. This is Spurgeon. Soon after his conversion in his early adult years, he wrote a letter to his mother in which he expressed his enthusiasm and his gratitude to her, and I'll read you just a small excerpt of that. Spurgeon said, You, my mother, have been the great means in God's hands of rendering me what I hope I am. Your kind, warming Sunday evening addresses were too deeply settled on my heart to be forgotten. You, by God's blessing, prepared the way for the preached word and for the holy book. 
I have courage if I feel prepared to follow my Savior, not only into the water, but should he call me even into the fire. I love you as the preacher to my heart of such courage as my praying, watching mother. Men and women may Spurgeon's title for his mom be the way that the children of Colonial Baptist Church think of us as adult members of Colonial Baptist Church, that we were preachers to their heart. That we reminded them of things that there is only one God. And you must love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. I pray that we would understand the stewardship that we have as a church to invest in the next generation of children. And so going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses starts here by reminding them of the law's central message. But then in verses 6 through 9, we can go quickly through this, he describes how the law's central message should be applied among his people, among God's people. So the challenge to train the next generation, I think, becomes even more explicit in verses 6 through 9. Look in your Bibles at verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. As we come to this passage, starting in verse 7, you see uh, that Moses is very clear in structuring what he wants them to do. So you look in your Bibles at verse 7, he says, you shall teach. Then you look a little bit later on down in verse 7, uh, uh, when he, he says, and you shall talk and shall talk. Beginning of verse 8, you shall bind. And beginning of verse 9, you shall write. And so as, as I come to these verses, I see these four things that the Israelite people are to do with the commandments that Moses has given to them. First, they are to teach them diligently to their children. As I looked at this word teach, I, I actually did a word study, and I dug in a bit, and it's a very unique word. It's not used very often in the Old Testament, and it could be literally translated, you need to repeat this, or you need to say it over and over again. Moses wants the Israelite people to remind their young people, to repeat it over and over again, these commands. I think this verb, when understood literally like that, to repeat it, to say it over and over again, is, it explains why subsequent generations of Jewish people, I think, believe, decided to start quoting the Shema twice daily. Repeat this over and over and over again to your children. But then he says right after that, second, they are to speak of them frequently. More specifically, he says that they are to speak or to talk of them when they sit down when they walk, when they lie down, and when they rise up. Okay, now, the way I would take the second part of verse 7 is because of the parallel nature of the verbs, you shall teach and you shall talk, that the second part is him really just further elaborating on the way that they should be teaching this to their children or the way they should be repeating these things to their children. And he gives them different scenarios or places that they are to be doing this, and it's quite thorough, isn't it? If you're a parent of children, you start thinking about the ramifications of trying to teach 
either the law's central message or grace's central message to your children. In all of these different places and locations, it can get a little overwhelming outside of the grace of God that enables us. So uh, in this passage, he, he talks about all these different times that there's to be communicating this message. In, in other words, I think what he's saying is there's never a time in which the spiritual development of your children is unimportant. You need to pass on these commands to them. It's tribute to parenting. Uh, my, my wife reminds me of the value of investing in our children frequently. She does so in a very loving way. Uh, and in full transparency, the hardest time for me is bedtime as a parent. I think, I, I don't know what it is. The older I get and the older my kids get, uh, the more I realize the great growing chasm between my energies near bedtime and theirs. I hit about 9.30 or 10, and I basically don't even want to continue to live, let alone <laughs> invest. So my wife will very subtly say, you know what, some of these conversations are really good conversations to use to teach our children. Because my wife tells me these are great opportunities with our kids. So there's never a time in which developing our children is unimportant. And then he asks this, he says, third, he says, bind these commandments upon your, your body. They're to put them on their foreheads and on their arms. This gives rise later on to subsequent generations of Jews using phylacteries, taking little pieces of the Torah, putting it on a piece of paper and, and wearing it for a time as they would quote this prayer on their forehead or on their arm. I think Moses doesn't necessarily intend it literally or metaphorically. This is something that should always be on your mind, should guide you, should direct you, but they take this literally and then fourth, he says, you're to write them on the doorposts and the gates of your city. Again, Israel took this practice with the law literally and wrote pieces of the Shema on paper and put it in little boxes. And to this day, if you visit an Orthodox Jew, you might find hanging from the doorpost of their house a box with the law in it, a piece of the law. So with these actions, Moses, I think, is progressing further and further away from the individual. It starts in their own heart, their own mind. It then goes to their home and teaching their children. It then goes farther to their doorpost and finally to the village. There is no place where it is unimportant to heed the commands of God. I think all of these actions are intended by Moses to remind Israel in every generation that the commands of God's covenant with Israel were important. And ironically, I think it's, it's true of many of the Jews, not all of them, but of many of them, that even these external reminders and their rigid devotion did not always result in hearts that loved Yahweh. So as we close this morning, we consider the importance of training the next generation of believers at Colonial. I'm going to ask you to commit with me to do two things. First, we should commit to teach our children. We should teach them things like, there is only one God, our God. There's only one way through Jesus. We must love God with our whole being. He deserves our exclusive 
loyalties. You know, this passage not only greatly convicted me as a parent, it also did so as a pastor. And I have opportunities as I walk the hallways of this church, even throughout the week as I interact with different family members. And there's a lot of different things I can talk to children about. I can ask them about their interests. I can see how they're doing. I can show interest and show love to them. But I sure hope it'd be true of these children that when they leave this church, they know that Pastor Brent was always speaking about the fact that there's one God and that we need to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And I want to challenge you as a member of Colonial Baptist Church. I would hope that that's how children would remember you too. These children grow up and God gives them here and gives them to us and they grow up and they develop. I, I sure hope that their memories of you would be love God with all the heart, soul, and mind. There's one elderly man, uh, actually he passed away uh, several years ago, but when I was growing up he was elderly. His name was Gerald Stallman in our church back home. And uh, when I remember him, I just always think of his avid love for God. He's constantly taking me aside, and he wasn't a very outgoing man, wasn't very social, but he would take me aside, and he would just kind of invest just a spiritual lesson from the scripture in my heart. I trust that that would be true of the members of Colonial Baptist Church, so we must commit to teach our children, and then we must pray that God will work in the hearts of our youth and use them greatly to stand for the triune God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a fallen world. Listen, it is not popular to claim there's only one God in our world today. But by God's grace and enablement, for his glory, it's our desire that our children would say, one God in three persons, no other living God. I pray that we might uh, be a part of teaching them that lesson. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this great passage, this great passage, I think it communicates the law's central message. Even Jesus, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Said, you shall shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So, Father, as we reflect upon the greatest command of the law of Moses and its central message, I pray, Lord, that we might reflect on its importance for our own lives and our families. Lord, as we consider what Moses said to do with this, he said that we are to teach this diligently to our children the Israelites. He says to the Israelites that they are to be talking of this when they walk by the way and, and while they sit down and when they lie down and when they raise up. He spoke of how they were to use this throughout their homes and in the cities. And uh, Lord, I pray that Moses' message to them might stir us. I mean, if Israel is to constantly be repeating and teaching the greatness of of the law and the God of the law to its people, should we not boast in the grace that you have demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ? And so, Father, if the parents this morning, as we 
the parents in the room, as we consider and as we evaluate our own lives, I pray that we would be honest and truthful with our commitment to our children and communicating to them things like these. Lord, I pray that you would not only challenge us and convict us, but that you would enable us to repeat these sort of great spiritual concepts to our children repeatedly. And Father, for the members of Colonial Baptist here who have opportunity as they walk down the hallways or as they engage with other members in their homes, they spend time with other people in their adult Bible studies and and have the opportunity to invest in children. I pray that these sort of spiritual lessons would be what most thrills their heart. I pray that, they would, that we would delight in teaching children that there's only one God and that this God sent his son and that this is the only way for sinners to be saved. I pray as well that we would rejoice in telling to our children that God deserves and demands our total allegiance wants us to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. I pray, Father, that we would be encouraging with that message. Be honest with that message in our own shortcomings, but may we hold it out there in front of our children that they would love God in this way as well. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us as members as well of this church to be able to love you in this way, In Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.